This is Banished, and I'm Amna Khalid. What, you think you own tacos now or something? <laughs> I love this. It's oh, so crazy. No. No I can't does, even... by the oh, way. Oh, really? Because it sounds like you feel like you own tacos. No. I feel like I do. I feel like they're an American food, and I'm going to keep eating them. Those are my tacos. Mine. And that was Tucker Carlson, insisting that tacos are, in fact, American. Jamie Oliver, the British celebrity chef responsible for reforming school meals from junk to nutritionally valuable, has repeatedly been attacked for cultural appropriation. Earlier this year, he announced that he hires teams of cultural appropriation specialists to help make sure that he doesn't offend in writing recipes. Jamie Oliver's in the news. Uh, He's revealed he employs offence advisors to vet his recipes to avoid being accused of cultural appropriation. He got in a little bit of trouble, apparently, earlier. I think it was back in 2018 when he was accused of culturally appropriating uh, jerk chicken. Rick Bayliss, a master of Mexican fare, and by the way, a white guy from Oklahoma, has been criticized for appropriating a cuisine that is not his. Here is Dan Pashman of Sporkful from WNYC asking Rick Bayliss what he makes of this accusation. How do you feel when you get that kind of reaction to your work? Usually people that um, have that opinion of me don't want to have a conversation. Um, Those people that say it are usually very political and they have a mouthpiece and they just go around saying it and everybody thinks, oh, lots of people must believe that. And honestly, I don't think they do. I know that there have been a number of people out there that have criticized me only, only because of my race. Because I'm white, I can't do anything with Mexican food. Okay, so you have to stop and say, oh, wait, is that just plain racism then? So who gets to cook and claim which foods? And who gets to eat them? I spoke with Constanzo ocampo Reda, professor of anthropology and food scholar at Carlton College. We talked about the knotty issues of cultural appropriation and how they apply to food. I started out by asking her, why is food such a visceral issue? There's a couple of things that are unexpected about what happens when we interact with food, and not just at the individual um, level. When you think about food, you really have to think about the social consequences, the sociality of it, the legacies that it's drawing from. And I would argue that the majority of the discussions around food tend to be quite positive in a realm in which, you know, it is through food in which people are readily able to explore, to understand, and to share each other's culture. That has been happening from the moment we started really eating as cultural beings. Food really is one of those places in which it could do simultaneous things at the same time. It could be something in which you you eat in order to assert your identity. I mean, it's a way in which you can draw a very explicit cultural boundary about who you are in relation to others. It can also be a realm in which assimilation can be really enforced. And this is what we've seen, for example, when we think about what happened in boarding schools. It was not only just through the prohibition of speaking native languages, but it was also them not being allowed to eat, you know, their native foods. 
their culturally important food. So it can be done as a form of extreme oppression, as a part of very concerted, structured, and explicit assimilation processes. In other cases, you see it as part of these national projects in which a country will explicitly start defining what makes their cuisine, let's say, Indian or Mexican or Peruvian. You know, these processes start at the government level often, and they're very, very institutionalized. Food is becoming this hotspot of controversy around cultural appropriation it's really hard to pin down, like who exactly has the right to claim to cook and to enjoy the foods of others, you know, especially in a globalized world, it can be a really delicate issue. So Constanza, let me ask you about Rick Bayless. He's a chef who makes true Mexican cuisine from different regions of the country, but he's American. He's come under attack over the last few years for cultural appropriation. Now, you're Mexican and you're a food scholar. How do you see him? He is somebody that I have followed for a very long time. And when I started, you know, trying to reproduce my cuisine as I was living in the U.S., there weren't a lot of good Mexican cookbooks out there. And in fact, the two best ones were by Rick Bailey's and by this woman, Diane Kennedy. And I would look through those books and find recipes that either I had not heard of in a very long time or were really intricate. It was just not the common Mexican fare that was available in the U.S. 25 years ago. Really intricate foods like guansontles, which are these basically a little twig full of these little seeds that look like quinoa pods or amaranth pods, and you stuff them with a particular kind of cheese, and then you batter them, and then you soak them in this tomato and hot pepper base, and you eat them in a very particular way. I mean, that was a dish that was incredibly special. My grandmother used to think about it as one of her favorite dishes, but it kind of, you know, was hard to actually find unless you went to very specific regions and not often fancy places. These are food of the people. It's highly seasonal. So I discovered those books and was really interested to see how they would translate. Like, where do you find a lot of these ingredients that weren't necessarily easy to find unless you were really in the two East Coasts? You know, in the case of Rick Bailey's, he would take his entire restaurant down to Mexico for weeks at a time for them to learn how to eat Mexican food, talk about it, look at the places, interact with the people. So I actually really admired him. I mean, I use his cookbook and he has a real respect for what it is to cook Mexican cuisine. You mentioned Diane Kennedy. So what did you make of her cookbooks? You know, her recipes are absolutely fantastic. But, you know, I never connected with her cookbooks because she's British. She was an expat that went to live to Mexico under very, very privileged conditions. Her husband was a journalist, I think, for Condé Nast. And she learned to eat very high-end, exquisite and intricate Mexican food through that expat sort of community. And often because these communities, not only just expat communities, but very wealthy Mexican families, will tend to hire specific cooks from certain regions of Mexico to reproduce these really special dishes. But when she writes about it, you know, again, you could go through it and read it and say like, oh my God, there 
were dishes I had never even heard about, even though they were from the region in which I grew up in. The book was all about her, you know, and it was always, there wasn't a lot of mention about the people who had taught her to cook these dishes or prepare them. There was also moments of extreme condescension about how she will critique Mexicans for eating, you know, too much lard, or they don't really understand the balance of a certain flavor. And so even though I kind of admired that these were two people that clearly loved my country, took the time to really delve into it at these deeper levels, one of them I could connect. And I absolutely love watching Bailey's shows. And I love going to his restaurants and I cook with them, you know, all the time. Whereas Diane Kennedy, you know, I will open up her book once in a while and try to make something. And then there'll be a line in the explanation in there that just sort of reminds me that she's not Mexican and that she's not fully making me, you know, feel like we're on the same page. So it's interesting that now Bailey's is being critiqued by it, where for the longest time, Mexican food was really trivialized in this country. It was seen as too spicy. You see it in TV shows where whenever you need to do an anti-acid, it's a huge taco or something that's coming to attack you. It's seen as cheap food because it's ethnic. And he really put high-end, intricate, regionally diverse Mexican food on the map. In his shows, he's always giving a really wonderful stage to Mexican chefs, not only high-end Mexican chefs who are formally trained within a whole variety of like culinary traditions, but also street food and somebody's aunt that he might have met. There are ways in which you can do it that can be profoundly respectful and give the the recognition and the credit to the people who are preparing it. And that doesn't always happen, you know, and and I'm just giving you two examples, which in one hand, I wish Diane Kennedy would write her books in a way that were much more joyful and give credit to the profound cultural, historical, and environmental processes that came to be what Mexican cuisine is, but she hasn't. So I've been following the Rick Bailey's issue with real interest because he started a movement. He's one of the first ones to do it. He has these wonderful community-based gardens in Mm -hmm. Chicago. Now, yes, it should diversify by now. There should be more than just a Rick Bailey's and a Diane Kennedy. Why is it that we have to have two foreigners talking and teaching us about Mexican food when it should have been somebody who was hopefully Mexican. So this is interesting. I mean, at one level, you're saying you came to some of the kind of cultural heritage that you have via Rick Bailey's and his books. So it's, it's, (laughs) but you also, you know, and you're critiquing Diane Kennedy's tone, perhaps, but you recognize that they did a lot by way of opening up the space for people to engage with Mexican food, to learn about it and understand it. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to you about, you know, your own work is extensive, but concerning food, you talk a lot about Peruvian food, the kind of gastronomic revival that's happened and the construction of a national cuisine. This kind of gastronomic revival is usually seen, you know, and it's been done by Peruvian chefs. So people 
tend to see that as fine and almost they kind of laud it as egalitarian. It's not cultural appropriation. To what extent can you bring your expertise to bear on the construction of a national cuisine? So the idea of like how do national cuisines get constructed, something that has occupied a lot of space in the food studies scholarship and among a lot of different anthropologists. I mean, there's an excellent article by a Potteri where he actually showcases how the Indian government at some point decided to kind of come up with a very systematic and standardized way to regionalize and name all the different cuisines from India to the point where today, if you go to any Indian restaurant, Generally, it's going to be depicted using a very consistent language. You know, you have Vindaloo and that comes from Goa and you have this type of cuisine and it comes from a particular region. But that was a concerted effort. And the problem with these cultural processes as they happen at the national level, they often have economic undertones. They have undertones of nationalism. They often emerge in relationship to other countries around. So it's about determining this is where it ends. This is where it starts. And in Peru, it's been a really interesting process because they have a really intricate, very unique cuisine. It does not taste, you know, one of the worst things you can tell to a Peruvian is that, does it taste like Mexican food? Well, it doesn't, <laughs> you know. They're very different. It's a heritage that, yes, it involves Spanish heritage. There's a lot of immigration from Asia, in particular Japanese and Chinese contributions to their cuisine, Italian contributions, Yugoslavian contributions, German contributions. And so they're... And they're African food. contributions. And Afro-Peruvian contributions, the main chef, Gaston Acurio, he always talks about it being 500 years of fusion. And yes, to a certain degree, that's true. But it hasn't been until the past, you know, I would say 25 years where Peru really started to think about how it was going to engage in the globalized world. So how did the Peruvians do it? They started doing it through some very explicit lines. On one hand, you had nature, highly biodiverse country. It has two massive regions, a coastal region, the Andes, and a really big part of the Amazon. They also started thinking about how they could market all their cultural heritage, but also their culinary heritage to the rest of the world. And so that required a sort of assessment of what is Peruvian cuisine and an education to the rest of the world of what Peruvian cuisine entails. And that's where all this talk about cultural and biological diversity start getting folded into developing and documenting and packaging a Peruvian cuisine. Some of our listeners might be horrified by this, but I think it opens up a really interesting topic of conversation. You have this fantastic article about cooking a cat. Mm-hmm. And in that article, apologies to all of our uh, listeners who have cats as pets, but in that article, you talk about how this is an Afro-Peruvian tradition, mm-hmm. but it has been marginalized in the national construction of what Peruvian cuisine is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, we see things as national cuisines and we don't recognize that hidden within these processes are really profound exclusionary processes and systemic marginalization of communities and people. So tell us a little bit about cooking a cat. 
there's a particular festival in which the Afro-Peruvian communities, they will actually cook cats. It's around the, the celebration of a black saint, Santa Figenia. And it's been going on for a very long time. I mean, cat eating has, it mostly takes place in Afro-Peruvian communities, but it's always been there. Now, what was ironic is that at the same time I started looking into food, they started having these big food festivals called Mistura. And there was this extraordinary enthusiasm about really articulating Peruvian food as being this particular meshing of all the good things, mm. of all the different cultures that were available. Mm. But at that particular point, there started to be a selection of what makes it into that national menu. You know, mm. what is it that the Amazonian region is going to bring? What is it that the Andean region is going to bring? What is it that the coastal region is going to bring? And then all the different players in that particular process. And for example, with Afro Peruvian cuisine, a lot of what is considered today traditional criollo food or comida criolla Peruvian, it actually has a really straight heritage to Black Peruvian culture because one of the ways in which that cuisine made it into the mainstream, and by mainstream I mean into the coastal elite white Peruvian mainstream, was by hiring cooks, female cooks, because they were known as having buena mano or a good hand. Very similar as how, you know, black cooks in the American South was sort of incorporated into a lot of these soul foods that now are considered American, but they are actually black in heritage. So something very similar happened in Peru. But at this moment, it's these white elite chefs. And by white, I mean they are mestizos, but wealthy mestizos. These are families that can send their their sons and their daughters study to... Study abroad. Yes, to study abroad, to even get degrees from the yeah. Cordon Bleu in France. And then they come in and they start doing these cuisines and they start making cookbooks. Yeah. So in that process, they started deciding, well... What are we going to incorporate? And it was very interesting because the Amazon, for example, very much has never been able to talk more than just providing interesting ingredients. There's no intellectuality in terms of how the indigenous, a very diverse indigenous population of the Amazon, all their different cooking styles, all the different ways in which they manage cook. It's always just a source of strange, unexpected ingredients. Mm. What about the Andes? In the Andes, there's a little bit more intellectuality because there's already an appreciation for certain kind of cooking and like preparation traditions, like a pachamanca, which is a dug hole in the ground. It's like a barbecue. It's very intricate. So they still kind of grab from that. And then there's also the allure of the Inca empire. So that was kind of folded in. But then, you know, you had the Chinese cultural contributions, you have the Japanese ones, and then you had these sort of elite Peruvian population who were the intellectuals, the one that would put it together and put it out. Mm-hmm. And they're appropriating certain parts of black culture, but the cat was one that they didn't, that they were really fighting against, you yeah. know. And in fact, there was a ban against the festival. And I interviewed several of the fathers of the Peruvian food movement, and I was like, well, why not cat? And they're like, well, it just looks bad, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it looks bad to whom? On the other hand, they're promoting eating guinea pigs, squeeze, yeah. Yeah. but cat, they're like, like, yeah, but cat is different. Whereas when I went to talk to the Afro-proving populations that were preparing cat, the reason that they prepare cat is really directly related to their experience of having been brought in 
to this country, first as slaves to work in the mines, never being given any opportunity for them to really become part of the national fabric. Like they're always sort of on the side. So to the, the normative Peruvian society, they are always resenting the black population for not behaving mm. appropriately. You know, when these protests were going against the festival, the type of racism that was being mentioned was absolutely horrible, but nobody went to defend them mm. in terms of cultural integrity. You know, they were trying to. Certain organizations were saying, like, this is part of our heritage. heritage you yeah. know, we eat cat in many ways as a form of honoring an animal that is very resilient, that can put up with a lot of different conditions, that is agile. And in many ways, they often talk about how they will not eat kui because kui is a very passive, a guinea pig is a very passive animal. So at that moment through the how to cook a cat, you could really get a window of insights into if you do not have access to that construction of a national narrative, all you can do is just wait to see if you're going to be deemed appropriate or inappropriate for that process. And in this case, they were completely deemed inappropriate. When you and I were talking before we started recording, you said you'd done an analysis of a whole range of Peruvian cookbooks. So what did you find? Most of the recipes that are showcased in the publications of cookbooks are in essence black cuisine, but it's under the title of Comida Criolla. And if you read the sort of narratives that are there, they're often talking about, you know, a cook in their house that would prepare this really delicious. And then, but you know, the mother might come in and like show them how to use a better piece of meat or something to sort of fancy it up. And little by little, that was appropriated. So appropriation doesn't just happen in these really define cultural boundaries. It can come from different sites. It takes time for it to happen. And what's tricky about food is that it often happens in these profound points of joy. Like they're appropriating things that they like, you know, and they like a lot and that they're identifying as Peruvians, Mm -hmm. as people who enjoy and recognize their country. But, you know, we're often blind Mm -hmm. to the type of problematic heritages that we have. So, for example, just because I'm Mexican doesn't mean that I am fully aware of similar processes that are happening in my country, that we are ready to go and buy ingredients from indigenous populations without really thinking about sometimes the way we vote or the way that we live our lives are dispossessing indigenous people today. It's also attitudes to food. You talked about how Afro-Peruvians see eating the cat as a way of honoring the animal. And that's fundamentally different from how we think about slaughtering animals and eating them, right? Mm -hmm. It's a different relationship with these living beings. They won't eat kui, they won't eat guinea pig because they think it is passive. And eating these animals is also in some ways honoring them and taking on the properties that they associate Mm -hmm. with these animals. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole area that I find fascinating. One of the big things that you're saying is that the production of a national cuisine is a pretty elite process. Of course, yeah. Yeah, And that's totally in line with the construction of the nation as an elite process, which it always has been. You know, we all know it's an imagined community, the nation. Imagining a national cuisine is similarly elitist in that fashion and includes having to exclude certain heritages. The interesting 
thing is that if you talk to the people who are the architects of this movement, they really don't see it as elitist. And elitist is also one of these words that is tricky to sort of operationalize when you're really trying to think about these things, because I see it more as an instead of it being elitist, because you can make the effort to say, we are opening up these festivals to everybody. And for all intents and purposes, Peru has articulated their food movement as a social justice movement, a social justice and environmental movement. And it's all there. And they really believe it. It's just what is unrecognized in their eyes is the power relationships, that all these relationships are structured within institutions, structures, and narratives of power that have the additional that you can readily include or exclude different peoples into the process. And we've seen that happen even in Europe. Like, it's very interesting to see how once the EU came into really start managing consumption patterns and the movement of objects and goods within Europe, you started having these food movements, you know, very localized movements really react against the EU because the EU brought these standards of hygiene. So, for example, suddenly you had to prepare your bread in a stainless steel bat where, in fact, if you talk to people about what a particular bread from a region comes from, it has to be made from that wood from a particular slab of wood that's been passed down for generations that has to be exposed to a particular kind of air. So you see these movements in which power gets imposed with good intentions to order, to standardize, but that often leaves somebody out and they're left out at different stages. It could be at the initial stages of discussion or when you're incorporated. And in Peru, you know, often when I would say like, well, why don't you allow them to eat cat? And they're like, oh, they would always use hygiene laws. They'd be like, oh, it's not sanitary. We don't know how they're actually being bred. And yeah, they don't really know how the coolies are being picked. Or, you know, we can even look here in Minnesota. Yes, turkey farms are very regulated, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's without problem. Constanza and I are very, very good friends. And just last night, we were sitting together sharing some tequila and mezcal. And you were talking to me about what's happening to mezcal and tequila. Incidentally, we had a particular bottle of tequila that is owned by George Clooney. Tell our listeners a bit about the whole issue of the denomination of origin that we discussed. So one of the ways in which cultural appropriation has been dealt with at the international level is to come up with a series of labels, one which a lot of people might know, which is a denomination of origin. If you are producing a particular food item that comes from a pretty traceable legacy, you actually can go through a process where you develop standards. So for example, technically tequila should only be produced in the region of Jalisco in Mexico. You can grow the blue agave in other places, but if you do, you can't call it tequila. You can call it like an agave spirit or something like that. Now, in order for you to establish the denomination of origin, it's the same thing as champagne that's produced in Northern California. You call it sparkling wine. You know, It's an incredibly intricate and expensive process. Mm. So that means that often, you know, those producers that are able to do that have to come in with a really huge injection of capital. And these are also built on old land tenure systems that resemble 
humble, really problematic ones like old haciendas, you know, like for you to be able to have like a pretty lucrative tequila business, you have to access, have access to a lot of land. And that's not in the hands of any normal campesino or the peasantry in Mexico, right? And it's becoming a little bit chic as well for outsiders to come and make their own tequila. So of course, you know, in this case, they have the one that's owned by George Clooney. I don't know if that one in particular has denomination of origin, but it's labeled as tequila. So it's from that area. And that's problematic. Like in that way, I do kind of have an issue because it should be owned by Mexicans, right? But then the problem is like, what kind of Mexicans? Because (laughs) the families that have traditionally done tequila are very wealthy families. But it gets even more interesting right now with mezcal, because mezcal is sort of becoming the new spirit in Mexico. There's still a little tension about if mezcal comes from Oaxaca or from Guerrero, which are neighboring states. But it seems like because Guerrero is a very unstable politically and socially area, and Oaxaca has a lot of tourism and a lot of culinary tourism, it seems like Oaxaca is kind of winning the battle of them determining that mezcal comes from Oaxaca. But mezcal is something that's drunk in small villages and by, you know, your family who produces small batches. But there is this push, again, by very wealthy family owners and by outsiders to now start to standardize what a mezcal sounds like. I myself get excited. It's like, yes, it's real mezcal comes from here, right? And you can showcase how much you know about it by telling people like it's this agave or it's that agave, right? But on the other hand, who is being excluded from the process? And it's actually people who drink mezcal on a daily basis and they don't have access to pay for the standardization. The varieties of mezcal and agave that have been there for thousands of years are now going to be, they're almost going to become illegal. Even if they say it don't, it will become illegal for you to sell. You will never have access to certain markets. That's why cultural appropriation is really squishy. Sometimes these families who own these large lots of land where they're producing mezcal, they're Oaxacan families. You know, it's not like they're even from Mexico City, but you're drawing not only from the labor of the local population, often indigenous, but you're also drawing from their intellectual and accumulated labor. So to me, it's really, it's too simple to say this is cultural appropriation or not, because these are complicated processes that need to be disentangled. What you're essentially presenting is it's a complicated world when it comes to cultural appropriation, but this notion of purity and this notion that you can have a pure cuisine is it doesn't hold. Of course. I'm an anthropologist. You cannot have cultural diversity without change. Yes. Without <laughs> mixing up of things, without appropriating and moving things around. That is the beauty of it. That's also where the fragility is of mm. it. You know, I've even reconfigured what I think is appropriate Mexican food. Like with my children, you know, they are now exposed to Taco Tuesday and, you know, <laughs> and they like it. And we have these discussions of like, is it a real taco? Is it not a real taco? And we kind of joke about it, you know, like I'll say like, no, it's not like we will never have that type of taco in our house. But then they'll ask it and they're like, but we really like it. So I give in and then I have to like sort of defend it with my parents or but the worst people are the ones that are not Mexican. You know, I have had people who come to my house and if I choose to use, let's say, Gruyere cheese in a Mexican dish and they'll say like, oh, this tastes fantastic. 
fantastic what cheese did I use? And I say Gruyere, they'll be like, oh, well, that's not authentic. And I'm like, well, it's authentic the moment in which it came from my mind, my understanding of the world, my understanding of the taste, my multi-sensoriality, what I want to do, that makes it authentic. But I'm often checked by people who don't know about the culinary cuisine or about the flexibility. In Peru, for example, the best way to eat chifa, which is Peruvian Chinese food, is with an Inca cola. And there is something about the taste of that bright yellow. I mean, even the color makes it for me. And the burps that come out of drinking Inca cola with chifa food... (laughs) Unless you experience it and really lean into it, then you don't enjoy chifa food in the same way, you know? And somebody might say like, oh, well, it's this neon yellow drink. Well, but who am I to say that? That's the beauty of eating and learning how to eat other things. And so I'm a little bit confused sometimes. Who is authentic? My husband is Peruvian. My children are born in the United States. And we're very cosmopolitan in terms of how we eat. And I have, my life has really been enriched by learning how to make different dishes with my friends. You know, am I culturally appropriating your doll, for example? (laughs) Like you've taught me to make doll in a way that I didn't know. So that's where food gets really interesting because it is a place of extreme sharing. It could also be a space of extreme, you know, taking away and oppression. But I do think that it still leans if done right. It's a form of safe cultural exchange Mm. that is mostly still safe. And the things that are problematic, I argue, are actually harder to see than what these cultural appropriation issues are being talked about. So my dear, appropriate my dal as much as you want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My final question, what do we do with Taco Carlson saying that the taco is American and not Mexican? How do you respond to that? It's like the ultimate Moctezuma's revenge. Like he has no idea. The taco is clearly something that has made it across the boundaries. Like, in fact, you know, half of the United States used to be Mexico or these realms. And the tacos were there before Mexico was even a country. So for him to start make this big statement that it's American, well... Sure, have it. He doesn't know that we're kind of colonizing his mind in the most, you know, beautiful way because this is from like the first empire that came in and it's part of Native American traditions that have nothing to do with Mexico as a nation state. And he can have it for all I care. I don't mind. Thank you, Constanza. This was so much fun. (laughs) You're welcome. Constanza Ocampo-Rader, Professor of Anthropology at Carleton College. Before I sign off, I have some good news to share and some sad news. The good news is that my colleague Jeff Snyder and I received a grant from the University of California's National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement for the upcoming academic year. We'll be working on studying how anti-CRT bills are infringing on academic freedom at public universities and how different institutions are navigating this minefield. And now for the sad news. Alas, I have to say goodbye to Banished. This is the final episode, at least for the time being. With my regular teaching responsibilities at Carlton and now this new grant project, there just are not enough hours in the day. I will, of course, continue to speak and write on the kinds of issues I covered on Banished. So should you like to follow my work, please visit my website, amnachalid.com, and sign up for my occasional newsletter. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at amnauncensored. 
Banished episodes will remain online and you can revisit the episodes by going to banished.substack.com. Do please stay in touch. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo, and I, as always, am Amna Khalid. Toodaloo for now. Thank you.